really weird i was a lot of people and situation just got really tense sudden there it was it actually fell off and uh, was laying there on the ground and there there was just blood everywhere it was just a big catastrophe so yeah yeah that's what happened to me this week uh but uh hey i'm here doing the podcast feeling well well let me remind you about the Eric S. Brown and David Dunwoody Zombie Flash Fiction Contest. Progress is being made. We're getting very, very close. I know both gentlemen have been whittling the field down, and uh, we're getting very, very close. Oh, all kinds of reviews for you this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're going to love them. First of all, I'm going to talk about the new Danzig album called Death Red Sabaoth, which was very surprising. Listen to that a lot this week, so I'm going to tell you all about it. As far as movie reviews go, we got Revolt of the Zombies from 1936, which is the unofficial sequel to White Zombie, which is a great film. Is this one as great as White Zombie? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. My friend Angry Puppy actually sent in his review of it, and uh, we kind of hooked up on Twitter the other day, which is very cool. So I'll be reading that, be telling you what I think about it. Yeah, that's Revolt of the Zombies. And then finally this week, I was at Walmart and I was waiting for some pictures to be printed and uh, I was browsing through the movies and I found The Crazies, the remake DVD. Uh, it was like uh, 14 bucks or something. So I picked that up. I also picked up uh, Zombies of Mass Destruction, but I haven't watched that yet. So I'm going to tell you about The Crazies remake, do my review of that and what I thought of that because... You know, I was apprehensive. They're remaking a great Romero film. So is this just one of those churned out Hollywood remakes? Or was it actually worth watching? Well, I'll tell you. And for the first time in a while, I have a comic review. <laughs> I'm so far behind reading comics. I'm like four or five issues behind in The Walking Dead. I have them and I pick them up, but... You know, haven't uh, caught up on that yet. <laughs> but uh, this past week, uh, The Last Zombie came out. Now, that's by Brian Keene, written by Brian Keene, published by Antarctic Press. And uh, I was so excited about this. Mr. Keene actually broke the news to the Midnight Podcast when I interviewed him back in the however long ago that was. So my comic book store actually only got one in uh, the week it came out, which was last week. And it finally got more in for this week, so I was able to pick one up. And uh, yeah, I got to read it. I'm going to do my review of that. The Review of Beers, once again by Brian in Colorado. We'll be hearing that. I got a voicemail and more original music. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, sir. I only got one article to tell you about this week. And this is thanks to Brian from elsewhere. He emailed this to me this week. The headline is, Zombies Crash on I-84 Near Lloyd Exit. Now, this is in Portland, Oregon. A car full of people dressed as zombies crashed on Interstate 84 near downtown Portland on Friday, causing initial confusion by people who witnessed the crash. Portland police said the car was swerving in the eastbound lanes of the freeway just east of the Lloyd District just after 9.30 p.m. when it rolled over and crashed onto its top. Emergency crews took five victims from the crash to area hospitals with non-life-threatening injuries. Police said that in their investigation, they learned that the people inside the car were dressed as zombie costumes, and they were headed to a party at the time of the crash. Sergeant Greg Stewart said people who witnessed the crash initially thought the victims' injuries were much more serious because of the zombie costumes. 
We're glad that everyone is alive despite being undead, Sergeant Stewart said, referring to the costumes. While everyone in the car was taken to the hospital, Stewart said crews are investigating the possibility that more people were in the car at the time of the crash, but fled the scene on foot. The crash halted traffic in the eastbound lanes for about an hour, reducing travel to just one lane. All eastbound lanes were opened again around 11 p.m. <laughs> well, thank you to Brian from elsewhere. That is hilarious. Hilarious that people thought that the crash was a lot worse than it really was uh, because of the zombie makeup and the blood and everything. That's hilarious. And also, it's a little weird they had that line in there about they think people fled the scene on foot and that there were more people in the car. I mean, how many zombies can you fit into a car? <laughs> they packed it full of zombies and then rolled it. Oh, thanks, man, for sending that in. And the last thing I got here for you, just a, a bit of zombie goodness. Now, Dead Rising 2... Oh, I've been waiting for that video game for so long. And here via Twitter, I don't know who put it up. I think it was Zombie Command on Twitter. Put this up uh, because that's where the link is to, and you can check this out. But fairly soon, we're getting the Dead Rising 2 Outbreak Edition. That'll be one of the first releases, only available in Europe, actually. Uh, it's limited to 700 each on the Xbox 360 and the PS3. And it's going to cost around £100 for this thing, but it's a big box full of stuff including, uh, of course, the Dead Rising 2, the game, and a making-of movie, and uh, possibly an, another movie, all kinds of cool stuff. But especially interesting, to me anyhow, is the 12-inch figurine that comes with interchangeable heads. It looks very cool. It's a zombie. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it looks, looks really cool. But uh, anyhow, they figure that the Outbreak Edition will eventually come to North America, but for the time being, it's just in Europe. Would you buy me a joint of England? A joint of weed of England? <laughs> a joint of weed. Would you smoke it? Yeah, I smoke it. It's good to be high and not drunk. Why is it better to be high than drunk? Oh, uh, you have better language, better action, more activities, and more individual parties going on. You have better parties, better social life. It's better relaxing. No fighting, no clowning. It's, it's more enjoyment. Here it is, The Last Zombie has finally hit comic book store shelves. Oh, this is one by Antarctic Press, written by Brian Keane, and I've been following this a long time. Like I said, I interviewed Mr. Keane about it months ago, and he made the official first announcement on the Midnight Podcast, which was <laughs> unreal, because I love this guy. The comic is very cool, it has a great cover. Actually, here we go, here we go, got it right here. The Last Zombie, Brian Keane. And uh, it's a great uh, kind of sunset shot. We got a soldier with a, a huge gun. And he's just, <laughs> he's creaming some zombies. And we got zombies on the cover. So right there, that's the mark of some greatness. Um, but uh, the inside is in black and white. Uh, the art is done by Joe White. And he uses a lot of gray tones, a very, very beautiful penciling. I was actually quite drawn in by the uh, the artwork here. Now, it starts off with a nice message from Brian, just kind of addressing the whole zombie thing, and, you know, hey, hasn't the zombie thing been overdone already and super saturated and whatever? But, uh, you know, he, he makes a strong case for coming out with new zombie material. It's really good. So issue one is immensely promising. I was so happy with it. I love black and white. Uh, it, it takes place years after the zombie apocalypse. The survivors have been holding up in these bunkers that were set up by the government. They were maintaining communications all along the way. And we had people all over the country, East Coast, West Coast, communicating back and forth. 
But all of a sudden, communications are interrupted between the East and the West, and it's been like two weeks, and they haven't heard from anyone. So they got to send out a team of soldiers and researchers, and uh, they're going to go, I think, from the West to the East to try to reach the bases that they can't contact. So they're going above ground, and like I said, years after the zombie apocalypse, so... What is the zombie threat going to look like at that point? And that's what Brian is exploring with this comic. It's a great setup. Uh, we get a little taste of the zombies. This was more character-driven. We get to know the core group of characters, and I like them. This is just great so far. So I can't wait to pick up the next issue of The Last Zombie, Antarctic Press. Um, I just I want more and more. So Keen's writing is fantastic. You can follow it on Twitter at twitter.com slash the underscore last underscore zombie. Hope you're having a good podcast day. 
Uh, just saw Predators. It was very good. I won't give any spoilers away. I'll just say if you like Predator movies, you'll probably like this Predator movie. And uh had an observation. And uh may sound like a racist for saying this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Black people love Lawrence Fishburne. When Lawrence Fishburne came into the scene, and I didn't really think it was a spoiler because he was in the trailer and he's I think he was second build in it, but uh, uh, the whole theater just cheered like it was Jesus coming on the screen. And he, uh, yeah, he's Lawrence Fishburne. I thought he was kind of washed up, you know, has a big belly, uh, but uh, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, if you like Predator and you like uh, Lawrence Fishburne, go see that movie. Have a good one. Later. Jeff, man, I'm going to confess something, something that I haven't told a whole lot of people. But um, I've never seen even the original Predator, ever. <laughs> I've read a lot about it. People seem to like it. And uh, now Predators, you know, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I'm completely clueless when uh, it comes to Predator. I've just never seen it. Never, ever. So should I? Should I see Predator? I don't know. Maybe I should watch it because I'm completely unbiased. I have no idea. So should I watch Predator and then maybe Predators? I, I don't know. Let me know if I should do that. But that'd be interesting. <laughs> and as far as the whole Lawrence Fishburne thing, you know, despite the fact I'm not black, I, I do like him too. <laughs> no, no, that, that's kind of funny. I, I do like Lawrence Fishburne. Um, I always think of him as, uh, you know, the, the Matrix guy, whatever his name was. Um, and uh, <clears throat> now he's on that TV show that my wife watches, some, some crime drama. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know what it is. But thanks, Jeff, for calling in, man. He's a writer, a director, a singer, a musician. He sold over 8 million records and owns his own comic book company. He hangs out with penthouse pets. He can bench press a car, maybe two cars if they're Priuses. God, I hate him. But I also want to be him. The legendary Glenn Danzig. Oh, thanks. I got one more question. Now, you're, you're lyrics, and, and, and you're obsessed with horror and assorted dark imagery, would you ever do an album singing about like puppies and rainbows? Would that ever happen? Yeah. No, maybe I'll do a real horror record and talk about the Obama administration. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so many new fans. So many new fans. I did not see that one coming. I did not see that one coming. Look in the guys on the fire. This is Brand new album by Danzig. It's called Death Red Sabaoth, and it's their first studio release since 2004, which was Circle of Snakes, of course. And uh, although he, he has released uh, a couple others in the interim, but they're not Danzig stuff or original Danzig stuff anyhow, uh, he released Black Aria 2, which was like a classical thing, and then The Lost Tracks of Danzig, which was a bunch of unreleased stuff. So yeah, this is uh, Danzig's ninth studio album. And you think about it, you know, when you add up the uh, Danzig albums, the Misfits albums, and the Samhain or Samhain, whichever pronunciation you use, um, he's released a ton of material. I mean, <laughs> I just admire how he keeps changing over time and he, he spans a lot of different styles. And uh, I guess the band, Danzig, the band, was never meant to be uh, having a permanent lineup. You know, it's Glenn Danzig's band, and he pretty much brings people in and out as he sees fit. So he's kind of like the god of his own little world 
So yeah, yeah, Death Red Sabaoth, uh, Glenn Danzig produced this one himself, and he had a lot to do with this. He played bass on most of the tracks, he played drums, of course he's singing. His, his voice is back to being very prominent over the music. You know, the, in the past several albums, really starting even as clear back as, uh, you know, Black Acid Devil, his voice tended to be a lot more processed and kind of buried in the layers of sound that he was using. And this, he, he's kind of back true to form, you know, that he's back to the kind of Danzig that I think, you know, true Danzig fans fell in love with, with, you know, their first four albums or so. And the people playing along with him on this album, we have uh, guitarist Tommy Victor, who is from Prong. And he's a fantastic guitarist. Uh, this is his second album with Danzig, and he sounds absolutely fantastic on this one. And interestingly enough, drummer Johnny Kelly, who is the drummer from Typo Negative. And I guess he's been touring with Danzig for a long time, and he finally came in, sat in on an album. And uh, Glenn does play uh, drums on the one song, Black Candy, and uh, he, he plays bass guitar, and Tommy plays bass, I guess, on a couple songs as well. But bass is just largely unimportant on this album. It's mostly about the guitars and the uh, vocals, of course, as Danzig always has been. And supposedly, as I read more about the production of this album, you know, supposedly... Uh, Glenn kept the album as analog as possible, saying that like true analog sounds and effects are worlds better than digitally produced ones. And while I think that he kind of overdid it in parts, uh, I think it really does work well. It's especially fitting with his blues metal sound. So we got 11 songs on this album. First one's Hammer of the Gods, and it starts out just rocking. It reminds me of Am I Demon, sort of, uh, that kind of sound, with some really cool changes and uh, some really nice guitar soloing. Then we move on to the Revengeful, which is like this, this blues song with squealy guitars. The guitars are really up front and in your face on this one. It's great. Rebel Spirits is more of a rock kind of song, a lot more like early Danzig that we're used to hearing. And then Black Candy, one of my favorites, a great, great all-around song. It's, it's just really, really cool. Very, very cool guitar parts and Glenn drums on that one. And yeah, yeah. On a Wicked Night is actually their first single. And I think they made a video to go along with it. And uh, this song has really grown on me, as a matter of fact. It starts out as kind of like a, a almost a folk country kind of song. But then it, it takes a big turn in the middle and it gets really thick and it rocks. Death Red Moon is another song in the vein of early Danzig again. It's dark rock. Glenn's voice is extremely powerful as it's soaring in the chorus. The next one is Juju Bone, which is really, really cool. Actually, Glenn opens with this uh, spoken word kind of thing in the first few bars of the song. And he, he sounds like the evil Elvis that he is. <laughs> so, yeah, that's another one of my favorites on this one. Night Star Hell, nice and heavy. It's very slow and very deliberate, very cool. And then the next two songs are, uh, they kind of go together. They're like this epic thing. The first one is called Pyre of Souls and Canticle or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. It looks almost like testicle. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the first part. It's acoustic. Um, we have guitar and piano kind of going together with Glenn's kind of ghostly vocals overlapping in the background. Um, no words, but it's still very, very cool. The next one is Pyre of Souls, Seasons of Pain. It takes the theme of the first one and turns it up full band, electric guitar, everything. Glenn comes in full force and it's like a rocking ending. And then we close the album with Left Hand Rise Above, which is really strong closer, also very epic sounding. 
And yeah, there you go. This is this is Glenn's strongest album since Danzig 4, by far. Or maybe even two. I, I don't know. But the first four albums are fantastic. This is right up there along with them. It's like, you know, listen to one through four and it's... I hate to say skip them, but skip everything else and then just go to this album. And it's a fantastic, fantastic addition to the Danzig that we all know and love. So on a on my scale of one to ten... I'm going to give Death Red Sabaoth by Danzig a 9 out of 10. It's not groundbreaking. It's not innovative, but it's very solid. It rocks. Glenn's voice sounds as good as it ever has. I recommend that you go pick it up. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're coming for you, Barbara. They're coming for you. Look! Welcome to a DVD of Total Terror, Knights of the Living Dead, reanimated. Over 100 artists, over 100 styles, over two hours of bonus footage and extras, reimagining George Romero's zombie classic, Knights of the Living Dead, reanimated. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. In all cases, the killers are eating flesh. Night of the Living Dead, reanimated. Art is dead. It's all messed up. What's happening? Everything will be all right. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Review of beers from Brian in Colorado. This week's review of beers could be called The Clash of the Titans. And here's why. With apologies to the Northwest Coast, particularly Oregon. Colorado is the home of the best microbreweries in the world. Fort Collins, which rests in the foothills of the Rockies, about an hour north of Denver, has two of the most successful breweries around. And they're interesting because they are a study in contrasts. Odell's Brewery, founded in 1989, is a 50-barrel brew house servicing eight states. Just down the road from Doug Odell's place, you'll find New Belgium Brewery, founded in 1989 by Jeff Labesh. New Belgium is a model green business, running on wind power, recycling all of its materials, cooling its beer with evaporative coolers, no compressors. New Belgium does a great job with its marketing, and I have yet to meet a deliveryman who doesn't flat out love the company. Both of these companies are super successful, started and managed by visionary owners. Their beers, however, are very, very different. Odell's flagship beer, 90 Schilling, reviewed last week, is a great drinkable Scottish ale. New Belgium's best is spicy pale ale called Fat Tire, named in honor of the owner's mountain bike tour through Europe. Odell's brews Easy Street Wheat, a hearty, unfiltered wheat beer. New Belgium's Sunshine Wheat is a thinner, filtered brew. New Belgium offers some fruity beers. Odell's doesn't. Money is tight, so I don't want the Midnight Cory listeners to waste a single penny of beer money. So, I've devised some criteria to indicate whether you might like Odell's, or New Belgium beers. These are not scientific indicators, despite my co-opting of pseudoscientific words like criteria. But you should believe me anyway. This review is coming from Corey's lips via my computer, so it simply must be true. If you're a steak and potatoes kind of guy, you'll like Odell's. If you're a fish and veggies guy, you'll like New Belgium. If you like American football, you'll like Odell's. If you like European football, also known as soccer or hockey on a grass field, you'll like New Belgium. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? 
If you're overcome with an urge to put maraschino cherries in your beer, you'll like New Belgium. If you pour salt in your beer, stick with Odell's. If you pick at your toes, you'll probably like New Belgium. If you pick your nose, you'll like Odell's. I know, that's kind of gross. Think of this as a body horror beer review. And please note that I resisted the temptation to say words like ass. If you drive an electric car, try New Belgium. If you add a quart of motor oil to your pickup every time you fill your tank, try Odell's. If I say the word power and you think of photovoltaics, think New Belgium. If instead you think of invisibility or some other superpower, drink Odell's. My own preference is probably showing. Odell's makes some damn tasty beers. New Belgium is a quality microbrewery as well. On the Midnight Cory scale of 1 to 10, I give Odell's a 9.5 and New Belgium a 7.5. In the clash of these two titans, the beer drinker is the sure winner. Brian in Colorado. Midnight Cory is a listener-supported show, and if you'd like to join in helping to support MNC, you can by heading over to midnightcory.com slash give me your money. Here's where you'll find a handful of the links, including the PayPal donation button that helps support the show. We do have a few expenses here at Midnight Cory Central, and your donations help keep us going. Now, another way you can help the show is by heading over to midnightcory.com slash buy me things. And you'll find a handful of movies that we desperately want to review here at Midnight Cory. But we cannot get through Netflix right now. If you're interested in advertising with Midnight Cory, we can certainly do that too. Just email us at cashmoney at midnightcory.com for our rates and we'll make it happen. Last but not least, you can always support the show by spreading the word. Tell your friends. Chat us up on message boards and other forums and share them. Midnight Corey. Love, baby. This is really happening. The Crazies remake, this is one that came out uh, earlier this year, 2010. I was following the production. I knew they were doing it and I wasn't excited for it because it was just, uh, it, to me, it was just another Hollywood remake and everything that was coming out, the stills and everything looked really good. But again, you got to be careful because there's so much crap out there, especially out of Hollywood. So this one has nothing to do with uh, with Romero's original, other than there's this outbreak of violence in a small town, and then the military comes in to control things, and the military ends up being just as bad as the infected crazies, if not worse. So it's pretty cool. It opens with a Johnny Cash song, We'll Meet Again, uh, kind of in the same vein of uh, Dawn of the Dead 2004, where they opened with The Man Comes Around. Now, uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of similarities uh, as far as remake formulas go, uh, between this movie and Dawn of the Dead 2004, you know, uses much more, I guess, tasteful music, you know, some really good stuff. It takes place in the town of Ogden Marsh, and there's this chemical by the name of Trixie, codenamed Trixie, was accidentally released when a plane crashed near the town. 
So yeah, the, the government and the military is quarantining the whole area trying to control this outbreak because they knew something bad would happen. Now we got the sheriff in this town and he's really young, despite the mustache, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I gotta say, he and his deputies are very likable throughout most of the movie. The sheriff is very, very strong. He's, he's your typical hero that displays an immense amount of strength and character, enough to overcome all of these supposedly insurmountable odds. And uh, that's, a, that's actually a big strength of the movie as a whole, is that you really care about the characters. And that's really uh, one of the things that made it work for me. And I gotta say, I wish they would have given more screen time to the mayor. <laughs> He's the most unlikable character in the whole thing. Great casting there. But uh, I, I wish he would have been uh, on screen more so you could uh, like him even less and less. You know, he's along the same lines as the mayor from Jaws. <laughs> You know, I hate that guy. He's just making it hard on you. Well, yeah, that's him. Uh, but there, there are some great, great scenes in this. This is a very violent movie. We have a great, great bone saw scene. You know, the, the, I, I saw a lot of originality in the violence, and uh, that's why I enjoyed this so much, I think. There's a scene where a doctor is uh, infected. He's turning into a crazy, and he has this bone saw. And I, well, he might, I, th I think he might be like the coroner, a guy doing an autopsy. So he has this thing, and it's switched on. And this crazy guy with the bone saw is fighting the sheriff. And it's, it's an awesome, awesome scene. <laughs> it's great. It's very intense, very original. Um, and I loved the, uh, the kill where the sheriff uh, is held to the floor. His hand is actually stuck to the floor with a knife. So it's going through his hand into the floor. It's kind of stuck there. And this crazy is all over him. He's going to kill him. But the sheriff raises his hand up and pulls the knife out of the floor while still sticking through his hand. And then he takes and sticks the blade up through the chin of the crazy, killing it. And uh, while it's still sticking through his hand, it's just like, oh, you can feel the pain of that. And it's just, it's intense. A lot of great scenes. You get a real sense of hopelessness and dread. I mean, things just get worse and worse and worse. You know, it's basically, uh, a lot of times it reminded me of 28 Days Later, but like I said, they call them crazies instead of the infected. And the crazies in this movie go increasingly demented and lose their minds before they just completely lose it and start attacking people. Um, but even in their most aggressive state, the crazies can still do just about anything that they could while they were perfectly healthy. Uh, they can drive, they can shoot guns, they can run around and jump. Sometimes they can even talk, which we see. So, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it's a little bit of a different disease, I guess, than 28 Days Later. So there are some differences, but yeah, pretty similar. But like I said, I love the atmosphere of the movie. Very scary, very chilling, very scary in parts. It was really, really violent, very shocking. Things happen all of a sudden. Big shockers in the movie. Uh, the cinematography, the shooting... The lighting is brilliant. This was a very, very high-end production. It's a Hollywood movie, which is, again, while I was a little skeptical of what I might be getting myself into. And this new version, you know, it's very different than the original version in that it borrows a lot more zombie movie and infected movie elements to bring us the scares. You know, we have the very grotesque infected. Uh, we have lots of violence, increased violence, much more than the original. Uh, much more of a sense, well, I don't know, there's a sense of claustrophobia and being trapped and I, everything like that, I guess, in the first one, trying to get away. But uh, yeah, a lot of zombie movie elements in this. And a lot of confused and poorly, poorly misled people will call this a zombie movie. <laughs> and 
<laughs> Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of themes and situations that we see here that it has in common with real zombie movies, such as your friends and your loved ones just being complete maniacs and they're going to rip you apart and they're not who you think they are anymore. Uh, their, their total loss of control. And then we see man versus man because here we have the whole, you know, uh, crazies infected things going on. But at the same time, man is attacking man. Survivors are attacking each other. So we have that element. Um, we have people that will just turn on you, people losing their heads and just completely betraying you, despite the fact that maybe they're your friend and the good guys become the bad guys and, and all of those elements in there too. So people tend to get confused. They'll call this a zombie movie. So yeah, it brings up the question, you know, the age old question we've seen in a lot of zombie movies, you know, who are the real enemies here? Are they the crazies or are they the government, the military who actually were responsible for this whole thing in the first place? So yeah, yeah. Overall, I got to say, you know, something again about the makeup and the effects here. I don't think they used any CG. Maybe, maybe in the aircraft. I'm not sure. Maybe in some of the explosions, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure that uh, there wasn't hardly any at all. And if they did, it was very tasteful and very good. But I have to give it props for great, great looking effects. The crazies look really good. They're very pale. They have popping veins all over them. They're covered in blood. Their eyes are all weird. Very zombie-like even though they're not zombies. Uh, and the violence looks great. Uh, they kept it all practical. Yay! So <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Now, if you'll remember, back in the day, in my little lull between this podcast and the Midnight Podcast, um, I reviewed the four-issue comic that came out for a Little Dead podcast run by my friend Mick Pierce. He asked me to send in a review of it. And the comic book was a series of, of four that were all released at the same time. On the same day, they coincided with the release of the movie. And uh, so I read them back then, and that was months ago. Now I want to go back and read them again because they're actually a brilliant complement to the movie. I mean, it's like a perfect fit because you get some expanded storylines, a little bit more backstory. They overlap scenes in the movie. And it's not just a comic representation of the movie. It's, it's actually added material and more story, which is very, very cool. And I know they put up websites uh, for this, so it's a whole experience. And uh, I, I think they did really, really well. I thought, actually, overall, this is a fantastic movie. It's one of those rare horror films to come out of Hollywood that's actually worth watching and re-watching. I'm going to watch this again, uh, even if it's using the crazy's name. You know, that's the only bummer here. Uh, but, you know, when I look at it as strictly just a horror movie, it almost, almost gives me hope that the American mainstream film industry isn't completely incompetent of delivering good horror every once in a while. Anyhow, so, yeah, yeah it reminded me of some movies, reminded me of uh, Carriers, actually, in, in a lot of parts, which is interesting because these were being made right around the same time. But uh, yeah, especially towards the end as they're traveling through the abandoned roads and the buildings and stuff, I, I got this feel of seeing carriers. And at the end, I just have to mention one thing about the end. Um, you know, I hate spoiling movies and I hate when people do that to me. But, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you the uh, one of the things that happens in the end here just because it's basically the same ending as one of my all-time favorite zombie movies, Return of the Living Dead. So, you know, the government has decided that the area of the outbreak is a total loss and they just nuke the whole thing. <laughs> so that's that. And of course, that's what happened at the end of Return of the Living Dead. 
But man, overall, I was pleasantly surprised. This was a really, really strong movie. Uh, I'm, I'm just not comparing it with the original. I'm not even thinking about it in terms of Romero's original movie because there aren't that many things in common. So my rating, 8 out of 10. I dock it for the use of the good crazy's name. <laughs> Call it something else. <laughs> uh, but I do recommend that you see the original 1977 The Crazies by George A. Romero. It's a totally different movie and fantastic as well. The ceremony. The zombie ceremony. I'm the secret of the zombies. Destroy it. Now look, Cliff. Tiang here comes from Angkor, where according to their legends, Angkor was built by these robots. Thousands of tireless, feelingless human machines. Yes, yes, I know, and they call them zombies. Controlled and directed mentally by their priest king. Yes, and Tiang here is the last descendant of that priest king and the only man alive that knows the secret of the zombies. Tiang still insists his gods say he must create zombie soldiers. He says he'll show us how a handful of zombies can take an entire enemy trench. You have the secret of the zombies. Let me have it. Oh, Revolt of the Zombies from 1936. Before I tell you what I think, I want to read you what Angry Puppy sent me, because this is very cool. Check him out at angrypuppyfilms.com. But uh, this is really good, and he covers a lot of great stuff here, so here we go. This is the Angry Puppy from Angry Puppy Films. Corey and I got to talking last Friday about Revolt of the Zombies. Since I've seen it, and he was working on his review, I offered to do one as well. Corey agreed, so here's my two cents. First, to follow Carnage Cake's example, here's some background on the film. Released in June of 1936, it was directed by Victor Halperin. Halperin also directed White Zombie. The big star of this film was Dean Jagger, who has too diverse of a filmography to list here. Jagger was one of those character actors that you'd see and go, I know that guy from somewhere, but have to look him up. Dorothy Stone is the female lead. Yes, she's the star of Shave It With Music. No, I haven't heard of that one before either, and yes, it does sound like a porn flick. Yes, Bella Lugosi appears in the film, sort of. Several times, a pair of eyes appear on the screen. These are Lugosi's from White Zombie. They recycled the footage and tried to cash in on Lugosi's fame. On to the plot. It's a fairly simple plot. Boy meets girl, girl meets other boy, loves him more. First boy learns how to take over people's minds and make them his zombie-like slaves. Zombie slaves get free and then have to live up to the title. They revolt. Happy ending for everyone except for the guy with the revolting zombies. Like most of the pre-Romero zombies, these are more in line with the voodoo zombies in that they're not resurrected corpses out to eat everyone, but people that have lost control over their minds. It makes you appreciate just how revolutionary Night of the Living Dead was at the time. This is not a great movie by today's standards. I don't think it was a great film by the standards back in 36. However, you have to view it within the historical context that it was released. In 1936, Europe was still rebuilding from World War I. Uh, the U.S. was in the depths of a painful depression. At the box office, Modern Times, Mr. Deeds goes to town, and My Man Godfrey are released. People are looking for distractions from the bad news and hardships of their lives. This movie was a minor blip during that year and is listed as one of the worst five films of that year. Maybe it suffers in comparison to the other films. Maybe 70 years from now, other films that get trashed by critics will now be reviewed far better in comparison to the rest of the year? That seems reasonable. The film suffers from overt racist plot devices, typical during this time, melodramatic acting, and a generally weak story. 
It's a tolerable film to have on his background, but solely because of the strength of Dean Jagger. Watch nearly any of his other performances and you'll see a great actor. A Dog's Life is one of my favorite films. Here, even his talent can't carry the weak plot. For background noise, maybe some music or a good podcast or two. I confess I got my copy of the film for a buck last year with the intent of using it as a prize for a contest I sponsored at work last Halloween. At the end of the contest, I couldn't give away my copy. I still have it. The movie is fairly unwatchable, but not bad for a buck. Corey was having a fine beer and trying to get through it and having a really hard time. I think that says it all. If beer can't save a film, it's pretty sad. Angry Puppy. Well, dude, thank you, sir, for sending that in. I, I gotta tell you, you hit the bullseye with this review. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, <laughs> yeah, I, I was uh, having a hard time finishing this movie. It took me a couple tries. Uh, I, I've seen it several times before, but it's like every time I just completely forget how, how painful it is to watch it. <laughs> So, yeah, let's go back to this being a sequel to White Zombie. You know, money grabbing was around even in the 1930s that we see here. You know, the Halperns, actually, if you think about it, would have been stupid not to try a sequel to White Zombie. I think uh, the formula that has been developed over the years is that a movie sequel will generally do 75% as well as the original. And since White Zombie was a huge success to them, another movie in the same vein just kind of made sense. Unfortunately, uh, Revolt of the Zombies is your typical case of the sequel blues. Uh, yeah, yeah, yep. Something that would plague great films as we go through film history, such as Teen Wolf, The Exorcist, and Saw. <laughs> it's just a very poorly done shadow of what the first film was. Now, what's interesting, you know, they used Lugosi's eyes, and not only that, but they kind of cast a guy who sort of looked like Lugosi. Um, much better, though, than uh, Ed Wood did with Plan 9, where he needed to cast a Lugosi double because Bella had died at that point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, so he's kind of got that, got that look. But to me, he was like a lot more effeminate, so it wasn't, you know, in the least bit scary to me or menacing at all. <laughs> this takes place in Cambodia during the First World War. Uh, we have a Cambodian priest who holds the secret to the zombies, and so uh, the troops arrest him, but he refuses to give up his secret. So this Lugosi lookalike guy kills the priest while he's in the temple doing his little worship thing. And he steals the zombie secret from him, which is apparently carried around with him at all times on a cloth drawn as a, a, a picture of something. <laughs> so it, it, we have this whole team of like researchers and archaeologists dispatched to look for the secret of the zombies. And eventually, one of them finds the secret, and he uses it to start his own army of zombies. And this is the guy who is trying to get the girl back when Angry Puppy was telling you about the plot. So, yeah, this guy's ultimate quest is to win back this woman that betrayed him to marry their fellow researcher, archaeologist guy, whoever he was. And in the end, uh, he tries to prove his love for her by releasing the zombies from his control. But uh, they revolt, and they find him and kill him. <laughs> Because they're kind of upset that uh, he made them into, quote, zombies. So, yeah, this is definitely a film, first of all, that's drawing war parallels of the time. You know, entire nations of people under the control of foreign influence. So that's the whole kind of theme going on throughout this one. But I'll tell you what, it's just, 
some of the worst sets that I've ever seen. It looks like these are just leftover pieces from really bad plays. Uh, the actors are obviously inside a soundstage with giant pictures of the scenery behind them. <laughs> and the lighting's real flat. There's no atmosphere whatsoever like White Zombie had. If you remember the dreamlike, menacing atmosphere of White Zombie, and this has none of that. None of that. It looks much more like a stage production, so it's almost like it, it took a step back. You know, White Zombie took a couple steps forward with breaking out of the stage production look. But uh, yeah, Revolt of the Zombies came along and we're right back to where we were before. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, Arthur Martinelli, the cinematographer, was involved in this one again. So we have some decent camera movement, you know, good panning and dolly shots and zooms, things like that. But uh, overall, it's nothing, nothing like White Zombie. And what's really dumb is the zombies look no different than anyone else, except that they seem to acquire nipples when they're shot with a gun. <laughs> it's the one scene, and it's just really bad effects is what it is, but there's a scene of one soldier firing at the zombies, and you see what are supposed to be bullet holes opening on the, the zombie's chest, but it just looks like they're sticking fake nipples. <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> Even though this was supposed to be somewhat of a sequel, it had nothing to do with White Zombie, other than Bela Lugosi's eyes, of course. <laughs> and moving the setting from the Caribbean to the Far East, to Cambodia, really, really took away from the mystique of the whole thing. However, however, this isn't all bad. It's not all bad. This movie did bring something new to the zombie genre. Uh, there wasn't just a handful of zombies in this movie. You know, White Zombie, we only had a few, and every other zombie movies, we only have one or two that are coming out around this time. And this movie introduced a whole army of them. You know, although we didn't see armies and armies of zombies shown in the movie, it was told that the, the this researcher guy that was making all these zombies was making a lot of them, a whole nation full of them. Which brings me, though, to talk about the term zombie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, unfortunately, these aren't truly zombies. And Angry Puppy touched on this, too. You know, they're, they're only zombies in mental state only. You know, when you call somebody who's brain dead a zombie? Well, that's, that's what these people are. The Cambodians were under the absolute mental control of their master. And at the end of the movie, though, the spell is broken and they return to living as normal. Except they're pretty pissed because they were made into zombies, of course. And that's the whole revolt thing. But none of them were brought back from the dead, as most of the zombies were in White Zombie. So the zombies in this movie can actually be equated to zombified Madeline in White Zombie. Now, she was the girl who they thought was a zombie, but she wasn't really dead. She was only kind of hypnotized by this potion. So they referred to her as a zombie, and they kind of carried that over here. It just doesn't work. Now, interestingly enough, you know, we talk about the whole great zombie controversy, the great debate. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, this was actually a point of controversy in the 30s when the movie was released. Reviewers noticed that these weren't real zombies. They weren't brought back from the dead by, you know, means of some force. They were just people that stood there looking retarded. And this is from uh, the New York Times critic Frank S. Nugent. Quote, Even a zombie has his rights, and we loyal necrophiles will fight to the last mandrake root to protect them. Under any code of fair practice, a zombie is entitled to be authentically dead, but revived horrendously by some sorcerer to do his evil bidding. End quote. So, this great zombie debate that always seems to be coming up, 
which I've found to be really stupid, generally, <laughs> has been going on for much, much longer than you think. This is going back to the 30s. So, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna probably never watch Revolt of the Zombies again. It's just not very good at all. Hardly worth watching. On my scale of 1 to 10, I give this a 3 out of 10. And the only reason that I give it 3 at all is because of its historical significance in zombie cinema. But that's it. Uh, that's too bad. Skip Revolt of the Zombies. Hey everybody, my name is TJ and I host the 13 Skulls Podcast. If you've ever had an unexplainable experience, then you know it's hard to understand. Visit www.the13skulls.com and come with me on a journey to a world that lies just beyond our comprehension. The world of the paranormal. Backwards oh, this week I got another cover. This is just a fun one. This is just one that I did for the heck of it. This is a, a, a one of those three chord wonders. <laughs> But it's by a song that I've always loved by an artist that I've always loved. Um, this is originally by Beck. <laughs> and uh, if you know Beck, he got real famous with Loser back in the 90s. And uh, he had, uh, he's been putting out albums. He's still putting out albums. And he's maturing as a songwriter and a performer and uh, just, just a great guy. But he also has tons of like all this weird, obscure, unreleased stuff and demos and B-sides and and things like that. And this is one of my uh, favorite Beck songs. He has some fantastic material that not most people even know about. This song is called Satan Gave Me a Taco. <laughs> now, originally, Beck does it in more of a folk kind of country style. In some of the arrangements, there's a banjo. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just a fun song. So this is Beck's song, Satan Gave Me a Taco. <laughs> And 
go my voice is about to give out so i'm ending the episode right now right now so next week you know going through zombie history here this is great stuff watching the development of it all it's actually very fascinating where it's been and what people have done with the whole zombie myth throughout cinematic history so uh next week i'm gonna switch gears we're switching from lugosi to his nemesis boris karloff (laughs) oh yeah um, like I said last week, go read about the whole Lugosi-Karloff conflict <laughs> that went on. It's fantastic. Actually, actually, you know, thinking about that, uh, I always think of the great line that uh, Martin Landau's performance of uh, Lugosi had to say about Karloff in the movie Ed Wood. You know which movie of yours I love, Mr. Lugosi? The Invisible Ray. You were great as Karloff's sidekick. Karloff? Sidekick? Fuck you! Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit! That limey cocksucker can rot in hell for all I care! What happened? How dare that asshole bring up Karloff? You think it takes talent to play Frankenstein? It's all on makeup and then grunting. That is a fantastic movie. Oh, man. I ought to review Ed Wood one of these times. I need to watch it again. You know, I haven't watched it. I think the last time I watched Ed Wood, it was on VHS, and I about wore that tape out. It was so good. (laughs) So good. But anyhow, Boris Karloff was in three zombie movies during the 1930s, and uh, they were in pretty much direct response to White Zombie. So uh, the one I'm going to talk about next week is the first of them from 1933 called The Ghoul. Oh, yes. And uh, if you're lucky, yeah, if you're lucky, uh, maybe, maybe I'll talk about Zombies of Mass Destruction if I get a chance to to watch it. Uh, it depends. I'm not sure. But I'll have other good stuff for you next week, too. So thank you for listening to me. Check out MidnightCory.com. You can call the voicemail of death at 814-806-2828. Listen to me on Library of the Living Dead with Dr. Puss and also James Melzer's Unleashed. Next week, I'll be talking some more, so listen to me then, too. Thank you.